Good morning. This is Sunday, May 10th. 2020. It's 11.07 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman of the We Be Imagining podcast. This is mini-sode number four. Happy Mother's Day, y'all. We are here to listen to four parents who have child welfare involvement talk about what it means to celebrate this day where many do not have the opportunity to be with their families due to the New York City Administration of Children's Services and their response to the shelter-in-place order and the COVID-19 pandemic. First, I would like to begin with my friend and my colleague in the struggle, Joyce McMillan. How are you doing today, Joyce? You and happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers, um, especially those who are unable to celebrate with their children today. Um, it's so good to have you on the show because I really love that you have uh, no filter when it comes to exposing the way in which child welfare is implemented in the state of New York and nationally. Could you say a little bit for our listeners about um, your relationship to child welfare and your advocacy work? My relationship to um, the Administration of Children's Services, better known as ACS, is 20 years ago they came into my life and tried to destroy my relationship with my children and my extended family um, by putting us against one another, placing my child in foster care, suspending visits because of my advocacy, and just doing everything to make my life a living hell and shattering the bond between myself and my child. And Thank so- you so much for, for sharing that. Sorry, I interrupted you. Did you want to add something? No, no, I was just going to say because of that, I've become a starch advocate to change how this system works, to abolish it. Fantastic. And I really want to, as we proceed in the episode, I definitely want to get into more detail about that. But I was thinking that we can introduce each person um, and so people can kind of see what is the type of experience that's being brought to bear today. Hope, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Can you hear? Okay. My name is Hope Lizette Newton. Um... My involvement, I was introduced to ACS when my husband, meaning he was my husband, called in a case um, called, the, called the ambulance. No, he called police, ACS, and an ambulance after I had already taken my children to the hospital and had treatment. Um, and that was my introduction to ACS um, with false and malicious reports. And my husband was an abuser and he weaponized the child welfare and the legal system to try to prove a narrative that I was um, an abusive and neglectful mother that lasted for more than a decade. So that's my mm. involvement, going through the revolving door of family, criminal court, and housing court uh, based on his allegations and being awarded sole legal custody twice throughout that. So I had an abuser that weaponized the system against me. And now I'm a parent advocate that works for law firms that represent parents with open ACS cases and a DV advocate and educational advocate. Hope, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, Raquel Singh, would you like to introduce yourself? So uh, my name is Raquel Singh. I'm the executive director of the Voices of Women. My interaction 
with child welfare began in 2013 and has involved a false and malicious child abuse case that extended between two states. Uh, I, at VAL, we work from a child welfare lens with domestic violence. Um, I am a child witness to domestic violence and my interaction with ACS has fervently made me advocate against many of their policies and how they implement them. Raquel, thank you so much. Angeline Matobin, um, and I apologize, Angeline, if I'm mispronouncing your last name, but would you like to introduce yourself and explain kind of your relationship to the situation? Hi, uh, good morning and happy Mother's Day to all our listeners and our panelists. Um, my name is Angeline Montabon. Um, I came into contact with the with ACS, uh, the Administration of Children's Services, very strangely. Um, I actually was in uh, an abusive relationship and I call uh, Safe Horizon. I don't know if some of you know, but Safe Horizon is the domestic hot, uh, violence hotline in New York City. So when you call Safe Horizon, you know, they're asking you all kinds of questions. And I was honest as possible and shared that I was a domestic violence victim. So as a result, the uh, Safe Horizon um, actually was the one to make a report. Uh, they called OCFS. Next thing I know, ACS came into my life. Uh, it, it was just a very traumatizing experience and me being in contact with the system and having my son taken away from me, I realized how really bad the system was, um, how our people, our children were literally treated like animals. And I've just been in contact with a lot of the very cruel things that they do to children and families. And right now, uh, my goal is just to spread the awareness of how, of what the child welfare system is actually what it is. Angeline and each of you, really, thank you so much for sharing your stories. And one of the things that I was hoping that we could get into for our listeners who may not be familiar with how child welfare is operationalized in New York State and kind of in general, is maybe if we could get talk a little bit about your journey from kind of being immediately experiencing the brutality of being separated from your child or going through a child welfare investigation to becoming an advocate and understanding how this functions as a system. Um, because I think a lot of people hear this and they think, well, you know, maybe this is anomalous. If we have something like 96,547 reports a year, which I think was, is around the number from last year, um, well, maybe a handful of them are going to be wrongful. And, you know, that's the price that we have to pay for as a society in order to keep the most children safe, because even one child is too much. Um, and maybe starting with you, Joyce, could you kind of respond to that and give people a sense of how this goes beyond just like individual anom anomalous um, bad casework? Um, the reach of ACS is far and wide, and a lot of innocent people have their lives turned upside down and their relationships between themselves, their children, and extended family members destroyed due to how they cast the net wide. And they do that through what's called mandated reporters. Everyone that a family should feel comfortable coming to for support, as in Angeline's situation where she went to Safe Horizons, 
who should have been in a position to provide resources to assist her um, in remaining safe, instead called ACS, who brought torture to her life. With mandated reporters, instead of supporting families and being mandated to support, they're mandated to report. They call ACS with suspicions or things that they've gathered through speaking to someone who's reached out to them for assistance. And what it does is bring you under the umbrella of this dangerous system that mainly separates families and rarely su provides support. They separate as a way of protecting the children, but it's not protection, especially when you look at the outcomes for children who enter that system. It's actually the only thing they protect children from is success. I know it's hard to hear. You can't see me on the podcast, but I'm snapping just because um, it's it's so horrifying, the legacy and the actions of the New York City Administration of Children's Services and its commissioner, David Hansel, on a regular day. But immediately when the shelter-in-place order um, happened in March, I immediately thought about the ways in which the same communities that are disproportionately targeted, like in East New York and the South Bronx, predominantly black and brown communities in general are targeted by child welfare investigations. What are the ways in which they're going to be uniquely vulnerable um, during a pandemic? And there's a lot of ground for us to cover, but I just wanted to highlight some of there's never enough reporting about child welfare, but I just wanted to highlight some of the stories that I had seen um, right at the beginning. And so one was um, the Daily News, May 9th yesterday, reported that New York, child, New York City child abuse reports plunge in coronavirus pandemic, but ACS doubts there's less treatment. And this is kind of a fascinating juxtaposition because in general, the largest professional cohort of people making a ACS allegations are public school teachers. Um, and the only time during the year where allegations drop is during the summertime when less children are in school. So on one level, you have parents that are going, families that are going outside of the radar of mandated reporters during this time. But on the flip side, I believe it was the city, I'm just looking for the article to pull it up right here, is on April 28th, 2020, they covered a piece called um, Parents Expecting iPad Deliveries Got Knock on Door from Child Welfare Workers. So you have this mixed messaging of saying that, you know, this is a crisis, everybody's just trying to do their best, let us know if you need help. And then you have families, many of which who are in temporary housing um, or just didn't have the income to purchase devices for each one of their kids, um, requesting from the New York City Department of Education an iPad. And instead, they got an ACS worker at their door saying they were non-compliant with the virtual schooling. Um, so I was hoping that maybe we could get into a little bit of what are the ways in which things have changed during the pandemic? And the last thing, and maybe hope you want to speak to this, is the thing I've been thinking about is when they terminated visits and how this will just exacerbate the by making permanent the kind of separation that has happened following a child welfare removal. And I know, Hope, you wanted to get into the safe, is it safe families? Could you talk a little bit about that? Safe Families for Children uh, host homes program. And you've covered a mouthful in all of that. <laughs> you know, um, in terms of removals, education, visits, 
and the host homes and domestic violence. So um, I'd like to take a stab at the education piece as an education advocate. Um, when ACS came into my life because of false and malicious reports, I was one of those uh, girls who grew up in the projects that didn't think that it could happen to me because I had done all the right things. I had gone to school. No one in my family ever had any, any contact with ACS. I didn't know anything about it. I was ignorant. And my ignorance about the system is what also landed me in the system um, because when somebody came knocking on my door late at night, you know, I thought there was a problem and somebody needed help. And what, I, what happened was I really needed help, but it wasn't the help that I thought I was going to get. It was ACS and the police coming to my door and walking through my home and waking my children up. And I ended up signing a three-day consent to remove for them to remove my children because I was afraid, I was traumatized, I didn't know what was going on, and I made a decision, you know, based on what was going on around me for my children to go to my mother's home. And that began a 10-year battle where the system was weaponized against me. Um, and throughout that process, I had a son who was receiving some support for his education, and that was disrupted. Throughout that process of navigating systems, I had two sons who had um, IEPs. One, I was able to get individualized education plans with the Department of Education, and one, I was able to get the Department of Education to pay for his private school education. So I bring the knowledge of navigating that system to the work that I do. And for the five years that I've been working as a parent advocate with the Center for Family Representation, um, I've grown in my understanding of what that looks like. So in terms of the way education has impacted families, there have been some policies between ACS and the Department of Education, but they've changed. Just like things have changed with this COVID-19, every 48 hours, one week to the other, something is changing. And the communication is not getting down to parents. And the policy is that ACS should never be called in cases against parents because of educational uh, problems with tech. And we're also seeing that that's happening. So a lot of times there's communication from the top that's not getting to, the, getting to parents or to teachers. But at the same time, it's problematic with the way investigators interact with parents. You cannot demonize parents in the communities where we're under heavy surveillance and say that you're trying to help us. So that's, has, that's been problematic from the very beginning. Parents aren't getting uh, laptops or iPads or tablets. Some of the things that they got were defective. Um, so it has been really problematic with that. But I also believe that during this time that I see positive things. I see that this is an opportunity where parents, because the system is so hard on your neck, are going to learn how to engage with teachers and how to work against the system because they have to, because they have to in order to survive, in order for their children to get what they need. I see parents who are engaging. I see parents who are creating platforms to support one another. So I see a lot of good things that are happening while the systems are down. 
So I anticipate that we're going to see some children who do really well while they aren't in school because they have more involvement or connection with their parents. That may not be everyone, but I do see that possibility because I'm hearing some things with parents who are more involved and who are more, who are more involved with their teachers and the equipment and staying on top of things. And that's a positive thing. Hope, thank you so much for sharing that. And one of the reasons I was really excited to do this episode is this from a personal angle. Um, I have been, I have experienced domestic violence and I lived in a domestic violence shelter um, with my oldest son when he was an infant. I have been subject to child welfare investigations. And I think that it's really important to share that because one of the reasons why I think there's a lack of awareness in this country about the way child welfare operates um, is for multiple reasons, but one of which is people feel so ashamed. It's kind of like being accused of sexual assault. Even if, even if your case goes on to be unsubstantiated, there's always this mystical, well, maybe they did do it. And what kind of parent? You don't know what happens behind closed doors. And I think there's so much shame that people don't speak out. And you look at the numbers, one in 15 kids in Brownsville under the age of 18 has been investigated by the Administration of Children's Services, according to the Family Permanency Commissioner. Yet, where are the stories? The way in which the society knows about the prison industrial complex, but we don't understand that when somebody makes an allegation that they can come to your house and strip, kid, strip search any child under 18, whether they're one of the ones where the allegation was made or not, just because they're present in the household. And they don't know that once a case is substantiated, that you can be put into the SCR, the state central registry, and that can prevent you from accessing employment for 21 years after your youngest child. Is it 21 years after your youngest child turns 18? Maybe Joyce, you could speak on that. 28. 28. Thank you. Um, So I really appreciate you guys being willing to share your story and you know, each of us have a little bit of a different experience, but some of this overlaps with mine. So thank you for speaking out about that. Angeline um, is a um, educator as well, but I just want to add this um, because I'm sure Angeline is ready to jump in. Um, for me, mandated reporters are no different than the failed stop and frisk under the Bloomberg administration. It was a way to target people that we are suspicious of. And unfortunately, in this country, we are always suspicious of people of color. When we look at even what's happening with wearing or not wearing masks outside your home during COVID, um, the paper stated, I think it was the Daily News two days ago, about on the 7th or the 8th, that 40 people had been arrested due to not wearing masks. And 35 of the 40 people were people of color when there has been an order placed by the mayor and the governor in this state saying not to make petty arrest. So I don't think it's by accident that when we come into contact with a white person not wearing a mask, we give them one. But when we come into contact with a black person not wearing a mask, it could very well end that person's life. So systems are not set up to protect people of color and it's set up to surveillance us. And ACS often calls um, what they provide to families support, but it's not support, it's surveillance. And the words are not synonymous to one another. Coming into someone's home, checking their drawers, cabinets, and strip searching their children, how is that support in any shape, form, or fashion? 
Families of color are disproportionately affected in every system, and the child welfare system is no different. We use that word protection very loosely, but again, we're not protecting children from anything other than success. And if the child welfare system was a great system, I can assure you people of color would only get in through affirmative action. No, excellent points, Joyce. Um, and I think between between you and Hope, you know, something that I'm really thinking about is Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Naomi Marikawa a couple of weeks ago did an event for Haymarket Books. And one of the things that I've been that really resonated with me is this idea that abolition is not just the language of complaints. And when we fight to close prisons, and by extension, I see child welfare as part of that carceral continuum. And when we fight to abolish child welfare, we have to reimagine other ways in which we can repair some of the trauma and the rifts within our families, within our communities. And Angelina, I was hoping that you could speak as a, as a parent who's gone through the system and also as an educator, what are the types of support that should be happening right now? or that you can even point to in some of the ways that Hope mentioned informally that are already happening within people's families or communities um, that that would be helpful to families instead of the surveillance. Okay, so let me just start by talking about my experience. So I called Safe Horizon for help. Um, they came to my house. The first thing that they did when they came to my house was to um, look in my refrigerator, right? So. Basically, it started as a domestic violence call. And once they came in, I was under investigation. Um, and I made it clear to them, the child had nothing to do with anything. The child had nothing to do. The ch They came in, the ch they had to basically look at the child, um, you know, and do all these sort of investigation that they claim that they're doing. Um, and it just became something more like they came into my life. My child ended up being in a system for over five years. And I'm thinking about, oh, you know, and when I'm looking back at it, I'm thinking about what a big mistake I made just by calling them. And I'm thinking about all the mothers and families in New York City right now who who are afraid of calling for help, afraid of calling for help, because you know, once you say you have a child in a house, you will be reported by all of these uh, domestic violence hotlines. So, and I know you mentioned earlier, the article that says that uh, a lot of calls to the domestic violence hotline are down. I mean, Wow, I guess a lot of children are, are staying home. Imagine if so, so many parents were calling for help. And you have to understand that ACS basically are training the schools, are training the teachers, are training the principals um, how to look for signs and to report more and more children. Um, it, this is what's going on in our schools. And I personally had to remove my son from the New York City public school system. Me and my son, we actually have to cross state lines for him to go to school every day because it was becoming ridiculous. It's like, I've been through the system already and I didn't want to be part of it anymore. And I looked at my teachers at that school and I saw them as threat. And, and you have to understand, you know, it, it, it's a sad relationship because I'm an educator and in my 17 years of teaching, I have never had to report a family, never. And I've never 
plan to report a family because I came from a community when people didn't have things, what you did was help them. What you did was provide support. You know, if a kid didn't have a coat, we had coat drawers. If a family didn't have food, we made sure we had food. We had uh, social workers. Um, the other point is the social workers that I was in contact with they were actually not helpful at all. A lot of these social workers that parents are getting into contact with in the foster care agencies, they're the one keeping the system the way it is because they're not working in for the best interest of children and families. They're actually, like, I remember when I, uh, my son was in foster care. I mean, I was arguing and, and fighting with these social workers on a daily basis just so they could realize and recognize the humani humanity of my child. You know, I had to fight about medical care so my son could continue to see his doctor. I had to fight so my son could be placed in a better school for him to receive a decent education. Uh, and I had to fight for everything. And more, the more I advocated um, for my son, it just seems like uh, they were pointing me as if I was a problem, you know? The more I asked, and they looked at it as if I was making them work more, right? I was asking for too much. And they felt like basically, like Joyce have said, and in looking into the parallels of forced to care in prison, they feel like basically once they have your child, they try to basically silence the parents, you know? They want to silence. It's like being in prison, prison for children and prison for the parents. They silence us. Um, they basically have a problem with any sorts of advocacy. And I know you mentioned earlier as us parents, as advocates. I did become an advocate, and I was not a quiet advocate. I was pretty loud about my advocacy, about um, uh, raising awareness of what was going on in the system, because a lot of people don't really know or understand. They assume that agency, those systems exist to protect families, but that's not what it's doing at all. It, it's doing actually the opposite. Uh, it's protecting families, like Joy said, from success. We're not keeping children safe at all if 80% of our prison populations are former foster children, right? How are we keeping children safe when most of these foster children, they don't do well in school? And that's what most people are not talking about. The experience, the experiences of these children in the educational system, they're not doing well in school. They're not excelling. They're not going to the best high schools, selective high schools. They're not going to the best colleges. They're ending up in prison only because the system in place is really not designed to help them, to protect them. The people who are designed to help and protect them are the, are the parents. And they're, what they're doing every day is isolating the parents from the children. Like, for example, um, they suspended my visits so many times just because they didn't like my attitude and you know what they do they try to portray us if we're you know 
bunch of criminals. I mean, they treat the parents like they're a bunch of crim- criminals and the parents are not, you know, and just a lot of things that they do. And I just hope people would really, really understand and come to sympathize with the experiences of parents in the child welfare system, because they are pointing or painting an image of us as very, um, basically we're <laughs> best way I could describe it is like, we're, we're just bad parents. That's the image that we see in the media. That's the image that we see everywhere. We're bad parents. And, and, and that doesn't really tell the whole story. You have people who are really trying to do better in their lives, people who are trying their best to take care of their children. They're trying to be better parents. You know, people who have challenges in their lives, but they're good people and they're good parents and they're trying. And people need to understand once you have the system coming in your life, your circumstances, they don't become better. They don't. They become worse because now you're under surveillance, right? They're watching everything that you do from the clothes that you're wearing to the way you're talking and they're passing judgment. They're going to court, painting a picture of you. That's really not what you are. Um, they're, they're saying everything that they can to keep the children in the system. And in my opinion, the only reason that they care right now about the calls to the uh, office uh, to OCFS is because they're not recruiting as many children as they're used to recruiting, okay? Because to me, it's a recruitment uh, a- approach that they have. They're trying to recruit as many children in that system every month, just like the police, uh, the NYPD, they have to do their quotas. They have to arrest a certain amount of, of Black folks every month. So does ACS. So does OCFS. They have to recruit as many children and parents into the system. Angeline, thank you so much. Um, you made so many important points, and it's just so great to hear you because there's all of this effort to brand people who come under the radar of child welfare as the unsympathetic victim, the crack whore. The poor, the poor mother who is incapable of raising their own child. So much of the coverage leading up to the shelter-in-place order was this idea of how are children of color, particularly like really, really, I mean, I think New York City is also important to point out while there's racial disproportionality in child removals in foster care nationally, New York City is unique in that I believe it's almost 90% Black specifically. Um, about 2% white. Um, I want to say 60, I think it's 65% and maybe 30% uh, Latinx. Um, but there's almost no white children in New York City foster care. And when you're looking at the heat maps that they have of which neighborhoods are being investigated, um, if it's predominantly white, it's almost uh, clear. But uh, Khadija is also looking at watch white children and thinking, these white children, they have to be protected. You know, we have to make sure they're successful. And sadly, they do not look at black children the same way. Because once they take our children, our children now are going to the worst schools. 
They're living in the worst neighborhoods. They're having the worst experiences. Like uh, Hope so beautifully uh, said earlier, her son's educational plans were in place. She was getting her son all the help and services before and after he came to the uh, to, to be under ACS, all of that was gone. He was no longer receiving the services. Like my son, when he was with me, he was going to the best school that New York City has to offer. But after that, everything else just fell apart for my son. You know, he had a great life before they took him. Now I hear you. And it's just really making me think, particularly as today is Mother's Day, all the mothers and mother-like caregivers and families that reuniting with their child is in jeopardy, no matter how strong your case was. I mean, there were people who were getting overnight visits and had, you know, a date on the calendar as far as having their kid back full time. And all of that has been suspended. And visiting in child welfare hasn't been considered an essential service. Um, So there's a few things that I want to get into. The one thing that I wanted to mention as far as a relationship between um, the prison industrial complex and child welfare is that a lot of people forget that um, the administration of children's services actually operates detention centers. Um, and so in particular, there was a piece in the New York Daily News about crossroads in Brownsville, Brooklyn, and how workers and kids in the detention center are testing positive for coronavirus at an alarming rate. And um, it's not just the way in which Black children are being socialized through investigations. I mean, think about like the relationship you have to authority when you have somebody coming in and out of your life at the drop of a phone call who's asking you to remove your clothing that you've never met. And that's just part of like the daily experience of so many people in neighborhoods that are targeted. Um, It's not just the ways in which hospitals disproportionately surveil Black and brown mothers and do drug tests that are without their consent or arrive at conclusions based on what people are wearing or what kind of family setups that they have. Um, But it's actually child welfare does operate um, ostensibly what are prisons. Um, And they actually operate even more of them now due to the raise the age law where 16 and 17 year olds who were incarcerated at Rikers um, had to be brought to ACS detention centers. So I just wanted to add that in, but I was hoping that um, we could hear a little more from Raquel and maybe you could talk about the your work with Voices of Women organization and just thinking about what does policy reform look like? Like what should we de- be demanding? What is a vision of what should be happening right now? And is there anything promising that's happening, ways that we're succeeding in addition to some of the challenges that each of you have mentioned. When we talk about ACS, we must remember that they are changing their name to NYC Children. And so in their attempt to rebrand themselves, we should not forget the legacy that comes with them regardless of the name change. For many survivors of domestic violence, having an ACS case, a child welfare investigation, is almost like being in another domestic violence relationship. ACS knocks on your door. They have expectations that you will let them in. They want to surveil your house. They want to look at your child. They want to ask you a lot of questions about your comings and goings as an abuser would. So you would feel isolated. You feel as if they're controlling you. You feel as if you have nowhere to turn to. From the perspective of COVID-19, 
I don't see them acting any different. And that is coupled with the Department of Education and educational neglect cases. The DOE and ACS are still acting under the same guidelines pre-COVID. Not that those were great at all, but they are, have not adjusted their guidances with the times. And so I don't see any changes from them. What I am cautiously hoping is that parents will have a groundswell and that groundswell will lead parents to say no um, and step up and address the issues from there um, to share their voice and to lead the movement to make change so that policies can be made by parents and for parents. And um, that idea of what child welfare could look like is, is what I'm hoping for. Raquel, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, <clears throat> Joyce, I kind of wanted to go to you. And what I'm curious about is, I know the scope of your advocacy work uh, in the way that Raquel mentioned is so broad. Um, as far as the legislation that you work to pass around the state central registry and what are the implications for families that find themselves listed in there um, to direct work with uh, parents with disabilities who are disproportionately represented in child welfare investigations. And I was wondering if you could speak to both what are the types of calls that you're getting now uh, during the pandemic and the ways in which they might be different from the calls that you were getting pre-COVID. Um, and maybe let's, let's start from there. Um, that's a really good question, and I'm very happy that you asked, super happy, in fact, because there are no differences. The only difference is that people are becoming aware the wrongs that um, the child welfare system is committing is becoming transparent because of COVID. As an example, I said to you, when my child was in foster care, when I advocated for my child, and I worked with Angeline when her son was in care, so I know this is also her experience and she's aware that they try to um, remove your visits. They suspend your visits because you're advocating. So parents not seeing their children for an extended period of time, I'm receiving a lot of calls about that. News reporters are calling also and asking me about that. But it's no different today than it was 20 years ago, right, when my daughter was in care or a few years ago when Angeline's son was in care. So the practices of the child welfare system are solid. They've been operating the same way, harmful to families um, and flying under the radar with it. So while COVID is a horrible thing, I'm looking at COVID, I'm looking for the silver lining. And for me, the silver lining is two things that I've discovered thus far. One is that mandated reporters are not seeing children, which makes children safer because mandated reporters are just people who are covering their own ass. They're mandated to report because the city does not trust that they would report if they actually saw something. So they force them to report even when they don't see anything because they're mandated to report suspicion, not anything factual. Um, and the other silver lining is that people are becoming aware of what's actually happening in the child welfare system through this experience. No, thank you. Um, I hear that. And um, 
I just wonder the, about the ways in which people are isolated right now that makes them more vulnerable. Um, just again, to share some of my personal experience is I have had somebody call ACS on me twice. <laughs> the second time it happened was that I, in addition to being able to call, uh, make an ACS allegation against an individual or a family when you suspect abuse, you can also actually call ACS on um, a nonprofit that's contracted out by ACS. So I had made a report about a nonprofit foster care agency that I had suspected of doing things that are fraudulent through going through their 990s, et cetera. And in retaliation, um, they made a fraudulent ACS case against me uh, that was that I was actually like tactically, I was very um, fortunate that they were so specific that they claimed that I viciously beat my then, I want to say he was four-year-old son, in front of the foster care agency and then dragged him into a cab and then continued to beat him. I remember that. Um, and it was so crazy. I mean, it was so crazy, right? And so I did a few things. And one of which was that I was really lucky. One, it was an Uber driver. Um, so I was able to prove where the ca- the cab was parked when they picked me up. I was able to contact that person down, you know, to automated a receipt to my email. So I had their full name. Um, he was ultimately able to testify on my behalf. The foster care agency initially requested that I bring him and the, my other four children to the agency to have what they call a body check, where they strip search them and check for bruises or marks that are consistent with physical abuse. I knew that was a trap. So I took them all to um, a Manhattan Upper East Side emergency room and where I explained the situation. And then in the middle of like prime time in the ER, this attending took the time to individually examine each one of my kids and then document and hand hand sign um, a letter on behalf of each of them stating that there were no marks um, consistent with abuse. Um, And then I'm fortunate, while I'm not privileged to have lots and lots of money, I do know a lot of people and I was able to consult with, through professional connections, people who are heads, uh, directors of different kind of like family defense firms. And I was able to contact my local state assemblywoman. And I bring this all up to say that they did not invent the strategy for me personally, right? Like, there's some 19-year-old teenager who was accused of viciously beating their kid and maybe didn't take Uber, right? Like maybe just scraped up $20 to pay for a regular cab and has no way of tracking that person down and has no witnesses and no family that will write letters of support. And I just, I feel so afraid right now for the parents that are coming under allegation and under suspicion and there's no witnesses. Um, Similarly, for people who are giving birth or going through pregnancy right now with no family members. Like, I just wonder, you know, what are the ways in which that we could bear witness for each other as a form of protection um, during this kind of pandemic times? And like, like you said, Joyce, I think there can be a silver lining. I think this could be an opportunity to raise awareness around child welfare and fight for different types of intervention that are more like support and not surveillance. Um, but I just wanted to throw that out there, that this is kind of what I've been sitting with. What's really interesting is mandated reporters are always yapping about wanting to protect children, right? Yap, 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 yap. But it's interesting that they only report parents. When a child can be injured or mistreated, abused, neglected, maltreated by anyone, for some reason, we only mention parents. And I think that's because we want to keep the parents under suspicion because while we're looking right, 
we don't see what's happening on the left. What's happening in foster care, when have you heard about a foster parent being arrested for abusing a child, sexually, physical, or otherwise? You don't hear about it. You don't hear about it. But you cannot tell me that it does not happen because I've worked with families who have experienced this happening to their child more often than you would want to believe. So I said to a doctor that I was on a panel with the other day, um, why as a mandated reporter do you only talk about parents if you really want to support kids? Why don't you say this is why don't we create a hotline where you report parents, teachers, police officers, or anyone else. I've watched police officers stomp 12-year-olds. They shot Tamir Rice. Nothing happened to that police officer. Unwarranted. No gun. 76 pounds soaking wet. We only go after parents. So if you're only going after parents, you cannot convince me that you're really there to protect children. You're there to separate families, just like um, Angeline said, you want to separate the family. Because if you wanted to protect the kids, you'd report anyone who's harming the kids. If all of these negative things are more likely. The harm is actually committed in the foster care system. But yet we're reporting parents. We never report the agency. Um, parents may be neglectful as neglect is framed around poverty, but the system is abusive. But when the system refers to parents, they say abuse and neglect. The first ingredient um, of our community is not abuse. We may, may not be able to provide all of the rich trimmings, but we built character in our communities. And that's what this white system lacks, character. And I would like to pivot on that piece in terms of what's going on. Um, the main thing that happens when we have these cases is the parental authority is undermined. And when parental authority is undermined and you put a one before the number when children, you know, um, become teenagers, teenagers do what they do. And they're going to have challenges. And once they see that another authority has come into the household that can kind of have some power over their parent, that also creates a major, major issue. But one of the things I wanted to say as a DV survivor, um, I became a member and now I'm also on the board for Voices of Women. And that led to my advocacy. And then being engaged in the system where it was weaponized and I was re-victimized uh, by my abuser, one thing that it taught me was it taught me how to become a better advocate. I was a part of the system, but I was also watching the system. And I recognized the system does what it does. And I made it clear that what I wanted to do was I wanted to work with parents to help them understand how the system works so that they can learn how to do what they needed to do to get their children back. And I just want to pause with that and say the system is what it is. And the way you the system mind messes with your mind, it makes you believe that you are a bad parent. And you get caught up in wanting to prove that you're right and they're wrong because in one instance, they're criminalizing you and they're saying that they're helping you. So it becomes a real big challenge in terms of understanding that the system is a formula and you're either going to work with the formula or not to get your children out of that system as soon as possible. 
And I was able to notice that the formula is services and visits. And even though that's what it is, it still has this really difficult play in terms of what it is that you have to do. But I found that learning how the system works by being involved in it back and forth for 10 years was something I never wanted another parent to have to do. And what it also taught me was how to become a better advocate for myself and my children because I studied how the system was working. And I was able to make sure that my children got what they needed because I began to study a lot of the systems that I had to navigate. I had to navigate the New York City Department of Education, the Committee for Special Education. I had to navigate dealing with the health system. I had to navigate dealing with the New York City Police Department. And all those things that were meant to destroy me made me better. I say this to talk about the character and the strength that resides in our communities. So COVID has brought out something that has been happening with ACS all along in terms of the damage that it does and how it impacts families. But what I see is families becoming stronger because they have to overcome that and start working with each other. Yes, we're isolated in ways, but I see families still reaching out. I see people reaching out for help, wanting to help one another, sharing, how do I do this? How do I do that? And I'm seeing a lot of Zoom platforms. We're talking about this today. And that's part of how we begin to move and help parents. People who don't know the system, you have folks like Joyce, you have folks like Angela, Angeline, and you have others who are talking about it. People who are engaged in the system, you have some other folks that are helping to show you how to navigate it. But I think we need all of this to help people survive and get through. Um, the last thing I wanted to say was that People who don't know the system believe that the system, which is New York City children, is there to help children. So if you've never been involved, you're like, oh, they're here to help or they're doing a good job. A lot of things that are framed as something that's really good, you have to really look at it and recognize that there are things in it that may not be so helpful. And I wanted to speak about safe families for children's host homes before we, we moved on. Safe Families for Children is a host homes program that's presented as some place where you would give your children to strangers while you're in crisis to avoid an ACS case or New York City children's case, and that you could sign a parental agreement for a year while you work and get yourself together. Now, this program was in operation in New York City, and it was shut down. And then the Office for Children and Family Services, which is the state arm that is like the father of ACS, Office of Children and Family Services, makes laws and regulations. And ACS, or now New York City Children Family, New York City Children, enforces, is the enforcement arm. So Safe Families for Children and the Office for Children and Family Services um, has Office of Children and Family Services has developed regulations so that they can operate. There's a public comment deadline about the program of May 27th. Parent advocates who've met with Safe Families for Children, who've listened to the president, who've listened to 
uh, lawyers, defense lawyers talk about the regulations. Parents are against this program and they're against the regulations because as those who've been impacted, we see how this can negatively impact parents. When you're talking about entering agreements for one year, we know what that means in terms of if your children are out of your care for X number of months, somebody can ask to put your child's name on their tax on their taxes for tax returns. This program says that the host families should be well healed and financially able to take care of your children. But in the agreements, they're asking parents what their financial obligation would be. New York City is a city of diverse population, people from different cultural and cultural backgrounds. Well, this program does not talk about how they would address any of those differences. The program also says that it works within the communities. We don't know of any outreach that has been done to any of our communities that are under surveillance for this program. So as parents who are impacted, we have a lot of issues with that. And we are calling for parents and advocates to write letters of an opposition to the Safe Families for Children's Host Home Program, as well as the Office of Children and Family Services regulations. So I just wanted to kind of tie all of that together and just put that out there because it's something that as someone who did not know about ACS and who signed a, a consent form, a three-day consent to remove under stress, under a traumatic situation with people in my home, I feel very strongly about a program like Safe Families for Children targeting vulnerable families who would not know anything about um, child welfare, who would do anything and everything in crisis, even giving their children away to strangers just so that they don't have to deal with courts and may end up dealing with courts anyway. And the it could be really bad. It can be bad. And we've spoken with a woman who had a who positively who liked the program to begin with, but then, you know, years later she's still fighting to get her children back. So we know that everything that glitters isn't gold. And just like people are dealing with shame and everything else, it's important for us to share our stories like we're doing now so that we can move forward in working with one another, help people navigate and get through the systems, and help people learn how to advocate. We already know how to do it. We just have to do it differently. And I believe COVID-19 is helping people without the eyes of ACS, without the eyes of the courts, and without the eyes of the agencies, people are developing their own systems. And that's part of the abolitionist movement. We're having, we're seeing a test run right now. The biggest problem with systems are when systems act and there's no balance. So as an example, right now, ACS is an essential work team, but they are only using their essential services to investigate callers um, investigate families after receiving calls about them. They're not using their essential services to return children that should be home. As you mentioned earlier, Khadijah, children who were slated to go home on a next court date, children who were already having overnight visits, um, children who were removed for reasons dumb like educational neglect. I'm not saying educational neglect is not something to take serious, but the fact that um, 
school is not operating right now to keep a child out of their home because of this is just outrageous. So you can't act as an essential team only removing children and not bringing children back home because that lacks balance. Again, the biggest problem of systems. But if people want to support not having this new program, Safe Families, come into New York, they can just simply write a letter just as simple as saying, um, I don't support OCFS allowing Safe Families to operate in New York. And that could be sent to Lisa Garrity. Her last name is spelled G as in girl, H as in house, A as in apple, R as in Robert, T as in Tom, E as in Edward, Y as in yellow. Um, and she's at OCFS. She's the deputy commissioner of child welfare and community services. And her email address is lisa.garrity, O as in Oscar, G as in Glenn, U as in umbrella, N as in nasty, D as in dog, <laughs> I as in ice, M as in mute, U as in umbrella. Um, at ocfs.ny.gov. I think it's really essential that we support our communities because it's only our communities that's affected um, to stop this from coming into New York as bad as ACS is and the current system is. In this system, we do have some safeguards where if we push back really hard, um, we can possibly win our children back or prevent them from being removed in this new system, safe families that they're calling an alternative to foster care. There are no attorneys or no state um, provided services to families. If the foster family decides they want to keep your children, then if they don't give your children back, you have no legal regards. You would have to hire your own attorney and fight. And that's the biggest problem that this young lady is having that Hope mentioned earlier. The foster family is fighting her when she has no money for court and they are well endowed with resources. Joyce, thank you so much for sharing that. I'm sorry to just interrupt for a second. I just want to be mindful of time as that we're at the hour mark. Um, so I just have one last question and then I was hoping that we could end with each of you giving like a happy Mother's Day wish and that could be... <laughs> Um, as concrete and specific as recommending a mutual aid group that people should give to, I gave um, to the bailout baby mamas fund yesterday, um, or it could be as general of something like a hope or a dream that you want to lift up. Um, but one last question that I had is just because a lot of the episodes of this podcast feature data scientists or people working in civic technology projects, thinking about surveillance as well as surveillance, the idea that we watch the watchers. Um, and just at some point when one of you guys were talking, I was thinking about stop and frisk and the way in which stop and frisk was ruled unconstitutional in the way in which it was implemented was that I believe, I can't remember right now, it was legal aid or ACLU sued the NYPD and mandated them to fill out these um, handwritten cards where they had to identify the race and demographic of the person they were stopping in the degree to which the, the frisk was intrusive. Did they just pat them down? Did they go through their pockets? 
And, you know, a lot of things are problematic on that. Like, I don't, I don't know how truthful NYPD would be, but they were truthful enough and accurate enough that it gave us the data to substantiate what people in the community been saying as they're trying to kill us, they're going after us, and they're not going after these other neighborhoods. And so I, I say that to say, um, I'd be really curious if each of you wanted to share feedback on what are the types of data that we need to be collecting right now um, that can support families who want to abolish child welfare, who want to validate and um, contextualize the experiences of individual families who are coming under the radar of this system. Um, and so maybe we can go in order and if each of you want to answer that question and then share your, your Mother's Day, Day wish. And I just, the final thing I wanted to say is just, I am so excited to have you guys on the show and be on this episode. I mean, wow. Like I just learned so much from each of you. Um, and I really appreciate you making the time on Mother's Day. Maybe should we start with Angeline? Okay. So let me just say, so when my son um, entered the foster care system, I came into contact with a lot of other families who were having the same issues. And I just came to realize how dehumanizing the experience was, right? Talking about data, I realize, you know, in New York City school system, you know, every school is rated. You will know kids have to take standardized tests every year. We know which, ki- which students are doing well, which ones are not doing well and providing services to help the schools and providing the children. I realize we have hundreds of foster care agencies in New York City and none of them are held accountable, right? So my first advocacy started with trying to contact the mayor's office, my councilwoman, trying to get data on these foster care agencies. I wanted to know how come they were receiving state funding, federal funding, city fundings, and they were not being held responsible. How come we didn't have investigators come in and and interview parents, interview children, and interview families just to get an idea how everything was going on. Because my first complaint was that our children, especially my son, was entering the system and they were being kept there. They were literally kept there. I could tell you the first three years of my case, nothing was moving. We were going to court. Nothing was going on in the court system. It just seems like there were incentives. And as we know right now, there are federal incentives to keep children, to keep our children, to keep the children from our community in that system. So I was asking questions like, do we have the data? Do we have the data on whether these foster care agencies are successful? Because I knew... I was at two, my kids was was with two foster care agencies. I knew most of the children who entered there stayed there for over two, three, four years. And I realized there was no data. These, you know, you know how we evaluate schools? At some point we decided, well, some schools were failing. Well, we should close those schools and up open new schools. But that same model wasn't happening in the foster care agencies. They weren't being evaluated. Nobody was looking at the data and saying, wow, you have kids staying in the system three, four, and five years. You're doing something wrong. You're not meeting the needs of children and families. Let's close you down. 
that wasn't happening. And they hated me because I was advocating for that, because I was saying before most people were saying that these foster care agencies were failing. And I was able to bring upon my background with the school system, knowing that teachers, administrators, we all get evaluated every year and decisions are made, but these same models wasn't happening in the foster care system. And they were protected. They were protected by the city. They were protected by the state. They had relationship. And I also wanted to know the data because at my foster care agency, the president was making over $600,000 a year. And I didn't understand that. How come you're making over $600,000 a year and you don't have money for children? When parents are asking for things, they're being told we don't have the money. Parents are asking for services. Parents may not be happy with the type of services that they're getting. So they're asking for alternative services. They're telling parents, well, we don't have the money. We don't have the resources, right? But at the same time, their president is making $600,000. And all the people at the executive board is making more than $300,000 a year. They're getting over a hundred million dollars from the city, state, and federal government. But this money is not even being trickled down to help the families because if the families were able to get access to that money, they would not need to be in a foster care system. But what I learned is, and that's what a lot of people are not really talking about, this is a poverty industry. Again, it's a poverty industry, and the poverty industry is a billion-dollar industry. And the, huh? Yes. And the way they're able to do that is like the poverty same pimpers. stop and frisk. People are poverty looking pimpers. at it, but people are not seeing how it's a business. Stop and frisk, jailing, prisoning Black people. It's a business. It's also a business to put children in foster care. Why? Because for each child, you're feeding so many people, social workers, presidents, board members. I mean, at my foster care agency, none of the board members were African-Americans. None of the board members were people of color. Most of them lived in Westchester County in their $500,000 homes, right? And their only goal was to keep my son in foster care. That was their only goal. And people need to stop following the money trail because it tells a lot of story. My son didn't stay in foster care for five years because I was a bad mother. And plus, I wasn't ashamed. And I understand a lot of people are ashamed. I was not ashamed to tell my story. I was not ashamed at all because that's just how I was raised. Because when I came into the contact with the system, I looked at it as this is another form of institutionalized racism that me and my people have to um, go through. Angeline, I just, you know, thank you so much. I just do want to be mindful of time and give everybody a chance to respond. Um, and since we're at an hour and 10 minutes, I know that, first of all, we can definitely do a follow-up episode. I mean, there's so much that I could, could we, I feel like each of you could actually have your own episode. Um I was about to say you need a follow-up. <laughs> yeah, no, we're going we're gonna to make it happen. I'm already, like, thinking this through as, as you guys are talking. Um, but I do want to be mindful of time and also that my kids are still living when I finish this. 
Um, I mean, they're fine. They're with my mothers in the other room, but they eventually they they they're always like, you pay more attention to the podcast than us now. Um, is if each of you could respond, but try to keep it to like two minutes or less. And I know that each of you have a lot to say, and it's challenging. But let's try to. I got thirty seconds Go for you. Well, forty-five. Um, a few about a less than a year ago, ACS hired. They spent ten million dollars to hire a mentor for every child in foster care to help them with their educational needs. Parents don't get mentors given to them in their home to help with educational needs, but we will spend $10 million on mentors to help foster families after the child has been already removed from their home. Now we're having COVID. Children are having problems uh, with electronics and other things. What are these mentors doing? Are they putting together paper packages for the children who um, do not have access because they lack Wi-Fi or other essential things that would allow them to be educated via um, the electronics that are supposed to be in place. The next thing I'd like to state is the foster care system, which we already know is a very crooked system. Like Angeline said, follow the money. It's interesting to me that family members and um, people who work for the lottery cannot win the lottery. But if you work in child welfare, you can adopt children and foster children out of foster care. So we have um, presidents of foster care agencies, their family members, their neighbors having easy access to children from foster care, fighting families to terminate their rights because they have first access to these children. Um, I think this is a way to um, push children through to families who don't have children or who want additional children or who want the money that's attached to children. I don't believe people who work within child welfare should be allowed to adopt and or foster children, and neither should their immediate families, just like the lottery system. That's a safeguard they set up to um, protect integrity. But that safeguard was never set up in child welfare because there has never been any integrity. A house divided is a house that cannot stand, is what Cuomo said in regards to Trump last week on May 5th due to um, Trump wanting to dispense funds to certain states, but not to New York State because we're a sanctuary state. And it's interesting to me that Cuomo understands a house divided is a house that cannot stand, but yet we divide homes as soon as ACS comes in by providing every family member their own attorney, which means you cannot um, represent the family as a family unit. They begin to put each member against one another from the beginning because a house divided cannot stand, and it is their mission to destroy that family. And if I could ask you to provide any type of support to anyone right now, it would be the Black Mother Bailout Fund. Yes, thank you. I can't I remember the name. That, That's perfect. That's what I gave to yesterday. Yes, they are bailing out mothers right now to be home with their children for Mother's Day because today is already Mother's Day. We may not make the Mother's Day bailout, but we can get Black mothers home. So their website is nationalbailout.org. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joyce. And uh, uh, Hope and then Raquel, I want to give each of you a chance. Let's just try to keep it brief, please, y'all. Thanks, Khadija. Um, I'm always going to speak to the power of parents and the parents' desire to do what's best for their child and, you know, the need to seek out things that are going to support them in the communities. I think it's so important for 
uh, us to do the types of things that we're doing now. Um, and I also was here really to speak about, you know, safe families for children, um, that there's a program that's coming that uh, people are interested in pushing forward. And those of us as parents who've been impacted, uh, I think it's very important for us to recognize the power of our voice and amplify it and to do what needs to be done to create pushback. I believe that we have the power to do anything once we set our minds to. I believe it's important for us to learn about these systems, to learn how they operate so that we know how to work within, outside, and to do what, what needs to be done to get our children home. And I also believe that it's important for people to work outside of the systems to agitate and to move things forward. I think it's a 360 degree type of effort. And I also believe that the abolitionist movement is having a dry run because communities are coming together to meet the needs that the systems that were designed to help, which we also know does harm, to meet their needs. And I think the numbers are going to say something different than what people expect. And I'm looking forward to that because I see families becoming stronger because they have to lean on one another. Not everybody, but I see people coming together. And that's just my prayer of hope. And I want to wish all those mothers happy Mother's Day and sending lots of love and light to everyone. For Val, we primarily deal with 60-day investigations, so the beginning of the child welfare investigation. That's always been our our focus. And so what we think that community organizing advocates need to do, particularly right now, is get on the ground right when the case begins. We do believe that that can change the uh, behavior of the case, that can change the behavior of Child Protective Services. So if we could be on video or by voice call as soon as ACS arrives or shortly thereafter, we believe that is a way to um, break the cycle of um, revictimization by the child welfare agencies. And oh, I'm hoping that that is something that can happen and can continue after COVID. We do want to wish many mothers and, and mother figures uh, a happy Mother's Day. And we also want to uplift the children. And we want to let the children know that we hear you and we love you and we're there for you. Thank you again so much to each one of you, Joyce, Hope, Raquel, Angeline. It's really been a pleasure to have you. Um, this is the end of today's episode. Again, it's Mother's Day, Sunday, May 10th, 2020. This is mini number four. Please like, subscribe, re review us. We're on Apple, Spotify, and all major platforms where podcasts can be found. Thank you, y'all. Thank you, Khadija. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you, everyone.
Thank you.